0: of our visit with 97-year-old John Dobson, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. It has been a good long while since we repeated an interview, but the holidays and a short vacation have brought that rare event around again. You'll hear brand new visits with Emily Lakdawalla, Bill Nye, and Bruce Betts, we've also brought back one of our most popular guests from all of 2012. If you missed John Dobson last September, you're in for a very special treat. Of course, you lovers of the night sky know who John is. He invented the elegantly simple Dobson telescope that put the universe within almost everyone's reach. But there's much more to his delightful story. First, though, we'll hear from the equally delightful Planetary Society Senior Editor, Emily Lakdawalla. Emily, it's my first chance to uh, wish you a Happy New Year. Thanks. You too, Matt. Uh, We did do that little review last time we spoke of uh, things coming up that you're looking forward to in 2013. But it uh, turns out that now you have much more information about this mission to Mars, the first ever from India.
1: That's right. And uh, the information was presented at a large science conference, actually the 100th annual of these Indian science conferences in, in Calcutta this week, They've selected five instruments for their payload. It's kind of a... A broad payload, really. There's a color camera, there's a thermal imaging spectrometer, much like Themis on Mars Odyssey. There's a methane sensor, there's a kind of energetic particle sort of thing. It's it's kind of like a, a one-from-every-column kind of instrument. Um, the spacecraft's going to be in an orbit that is highly elliptical, even more elliptical than Mars expresses. You know, it's not exactly the mission that one would have designed to do a first survey of Mars, but I think it's, it, it's a good practice mission for the Indians, which I think is really what this mission is all about. It's really more about the engineering goals of launching a mission onto a Mars transfer trajectory, getting it there and operating it in Mars orbit, more that than it is about the science.
0: Is there any overlap with these instruments with uh, the, uh, the U.S. mission that's going to also launch this year, MAVEN?
1: Well, they state their science goal as being to study Mars's upper atmosphere, which is basically the overarching science goal of MAVEN. And there is one instrument that's rather common between the two. But I think that MAVEN is is definitely a much more specialized package, very narrowly focused on this question of the upper atmosphere and the gas loss to space, whereas the the, uh, Indian Mars mission is, it's quite a bit broader, uh, but they will be able to provide valuable data from a different orbit bearing on the same questions.
0: So five instruments, are these all uh, homegrown?
1: They are. Unlike Chandrayaan, which was their moon orbiter, um, all of the instruments for this mission are going to be made in India. And that's actually a major point of this mission. They're making a very big deal about this being an entirely indigenous mission. That's the word that they use. From the launch vehicle, they're using their giant PSLV launch vehicle that's usually used to to launch um, satellites into Earth orbit, obviously. They haven't used it very much for space trajectories. That launcher isn't actually capable of firing a space Spacecraft direct to Mars, so the spacecraft will launch in October and actually spend a month in Earth orbit, slowly boosting its orbit up and up to a more and more elliptical one until it can finally break away from Earth's gravity and and get on its way to Mars. And so the spacecrafts being built in India, it's got a lot of heritage from Chandrayaan, and um, all the instruments are being built in India. It's a completely homegrown mission.
0: We will wish them the best of luck. There's uh, plenty of room uh, circling uh, the red planet. There sure is. Thanks so much, Emily. Talk to you next week. See you then, Matt. She is the senior editor for the Planetary Society and our planetary evangelist and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. You can catch her all the time, of course, at Planetary.org and in our uh, Google Plus uh, Hangouts uh, that uh, she alternates, uh, hosting those with Casey Dreyer. Up next is the CEO of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill, I'm so glad that you and so many others have not yet uh, tumbled over the fiscal
2: cliff. Yes, it would have been catastrophic. And speaking of catastrophic, the fight about planetary science funding is still ahead, even though we avoided going over this cliff. Uh, even if you don't live in the U.S., I, I imagine you heard about the financial situation in the United States where funding for everything was going to be cut off per this big threat that the U.S. Congress set up for itself. And everybody. they reached a deal at the last minute.
0: At least they put it off for a couple of months, most of it. The thing, but
2: I say this all the time. People are complaining that it's no way to run a government. and so on. Maybe it is. That's why you have deadlines, Matt. Yeah. So you can meet them.
0: Deadlines are magic.
2: Well, they, they certainly motivate people. And speaking of which, now we've got to do our best to ensure that uh, funding for these extraordinary missions continues. We need a little over $300 million U.S. every year for the next five years. And it's it's a thing that people have a tendency to cut. And I stand by this all the time, Matt. Science is the best investment that you can make. This is the best thing that society can do for itself is spend money on basic research, science, and especially space exploration, because it just stimulates the economy in subtle, wonderful ways. We have this you and I are talking by computer audio we would not have the internet without space exploration.
0: Well, here, here, I couldn't agree more.
2: Well, I know, but Matt, wait, wait, there's more. So this week, <laughs> the Planetary Society did a hangout. We had Jim Bell, the, one of the uh, co-investigators on the Curiosity rover, in full disclosure, he's our president of the Planetary Society. He was on and talked to several hundred people who tuned in for a little over an hour. Emily Lactawalla, uh Casey Dreyer and I. And then... Coming up, Matt, and I think you're deeply involved in this, we're going to expand our Internet presence and have anybody who wants to, right, tune in to listen to the experts running our projects.
0: I sure hope so. That's one of the things we hope to do with our uh, YouTube Live capabilities, and uh, we'll be telling people more about that very soon. It's exciting. It is.
2: We have to fight the good fight until the fiscal 14, 2014, 2014, Matt, time flies. I got to fly, Bill Nye, the planetary guy.
0: Just like the budget, he is the CEO of the Planetary Society, and he'll join us again here next week. John Dobson spent years on my planetary radio bucket list. I heard about his famous telescope design long before I knew the rest of his fascinating story. Born in China while World War I was raging in Europe, it would be years before John caught the astronomy bug, and a few more years before he would revolutionize amateur astronomy by creating an instrument that was simple, cheap, forgiving, and amazingly powerful. This was after he had spent 23 years as a cloistered monk. John was eventually expelled from his monastery largely because he was spending so much time building telescopes for people. It wasn't long before he and a few young friends claimed a corner in San Francisco inviting everyone who approached to take a peek through one of his magical instruments. That began more than four decades ago. Now let me take you back to the evening of August 4, 2012. It's a cool clear night in Pasadena, California. Curiosity would land on Mars the next day. Sitting in the middle of a planetary society star party on a folding chair wrapped in a blanket is John Dobson. Here again is the pied piper of astronomy. Uh, Mr. Dobson, it yeah. is really an honor to speak to you. There are amateur astronomers all over the world I know who are using telescopes based on your design.
3: I know it's called the Dobsonian Revolution. One time I was at a at an astronomy club and there, somebody was giving a talk about the Dobsonian Revolution, the Dobsonian Revolution. So I got up and said, all the previous revolutions were run with the cannons on Dobsonian mounts.
0: <laughs> That's right, I guess. Okay, so I had a DAB, uh eight inch, and now I have uh, another telescope from a famous manufacturer that um, is computerized and is all kinds of fancy technology but it's What's still aperture it's eight inches but it's still your kind of mount
3: yeah but our 24 inch used to be 24 inches across the glass and 13 foot focal length and it weighed 600 pounds and my friends used to get on my case you see because they said it's not portable but we've hauled it and it weighed 600 pounds We've hauled it more than 80,000 miles, and it's too late to tell me it's not portable. (laughs) That was a 24-inch telescope. Yeah. We've hauled it more than 80,000 miles. It's been through at least 25 national parks. It's spent more than 100 nights at Glacier Point in Yosemite. What drove you to want to develop a telescope that could be so... I wanted to see what the hell is out there
0: but you develop something that is so much more accessible so so much less expensive so much cheaper than so much of the competition
3: that's because that's because I couldn't afford all that fancy stuff <laughs> however let me tell you how, how we f- first started grinding glass i was in the monastery and one of my friends said you can he knew i wanted a telescope but i had no way to get a telescope And he said, you can grind your own glass. That's all I needed to hear. We had been taking care of somebody with jaundice, you see. And I remembered that on his kitchen table, there was a glass, a round glass. I thought it was probably six inches in diameter and half an inch thick. So we asked him, how would you like to have it ground into a telescope? Oh, he would love it. He brought it over. It's a 12 inch porthole, one inch thick a 12-inch porthole, 1-inch thick. That's where we started. And then later on, I bought four and a half tons of ship's windows. I bought four and a half tons of ship's windows. And we made a lot of telescopes out of those things. Talk about what your experiences in San Francisco, that
0: place where people knew they could find you.
3: All right. Let me tell you where we started. We started with a nine-year-old, a 17-year-old, and me, a 53-year-old. And so one of those, the 17-year-old says, what do we call ourselves? So he had several names. So when he said sidewalk astronomers, I said, let's call ourselves the sidewalk astronomers." So we got the telescopes out on the sidewalk at Jackson and Broderick Streets in San Francisco. And pretty soon, and we were out there all the time when there was anything to see, any every clear night, so very soon the news spread through the Bay Area, if you want to see, look through a telescope, go to Jackson and Broderick on any clear night. And then you see what happened was, people from all over the world looked through those telescopes, and that's why it spread all over the world. Look what we... See, the, the, the amateur astronomers didn't have ca- telescopes, that's not what they were doing. They had cameras, and the camera weighs as much as a coffee can, and the tracking device weighs half as much as a Ford,
1: <laughs>
3: okay? And when they saw us running around with big telescopes, they said, look what we could have been doing if we hadn't been taking these stupid pictures.
0: Because your telescopes really were for people who just want to put their eye up to an eyepiece I and want see to something.
3: See it and never mind photographing it. Want to see it.
0: So, how did you? What led you to develop these unique mounts that are so simple?
3: Well, first, they're, so, they're too simple to be unique. Mm. <laughs> they're too simple to be unique. They move. They move around like a chair. <laughs> anyway. They move like your eyes. They go around this way and they go up and down this way. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I had if I'd had money, I might have thought of something complicated. But I didn't have any money. We made the twenty-four incher in three months for three hundred dollars.
0: And a lot of elbow grease.
3: Well, quite a bit of elbow grease. The other person used to run. Uh, a machine shop, and he knows how to do everything, you see. So he got a trailer, once we got the thing done, he got a trailer for it, and we hauled it more than 80,000 miles. But it says, a thirteen—it's got a 13-foot focal length, then a 12-foot tube. Oh, I have to tell you a funny story. When we first set it up, he and I did not have a big enough vehicle to haul a 12-foot tube. So we wanted an 8-foot piece and a 4-foot piece of 30-inch tube. So I went down to the company that sells tube, and he's standing there, and on the loading dock, there's a 8-foot piece and a 4-foot piece of 30-inch tube standing there on the loading dock. And I said, did you come down earlier and order this? No, he said, didn't you? This is leftover from somebody else's order on that morning, a four-foot piece and an eight-foot piece of 30-inch tube. And I said to Brian Rhodes, something in this universe wants that 24.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you were right. The reprise of my conversation with John Dobson will continue in a minute. This is Planetary Radio.
2: Hey, hey, Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society, speaking to you from PlanetFest 2012, the celebration of the Mars Science Laboratory rover Curiosity landing on the surface of Mars. This is taking us our next steps in following the water and the search for life to understand those two deep questions. Where did we come from? And are we alone? This is the most exciting thing that people do. And together, we can advocate
1: for planetary science and dare I say it, change the world Hi, this is Emily Lakdawala of the Planetary Society. We've spent the last year creating an informative, exciting, and beautiful new website. Your place in space is now open for business. You'll find a whole new look with lots of images, great stories, my popular blog, and new blogs from my colleagues and expert guests. And as the world becomes more social, we are too, giving you the opportunity to join in through Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and much more. It's all at planetary.org. I hope you'll check it out.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Go to any telescope store or website, and it's likely that both the biggest and the least expensive quality telescopes on sale will be Dobbs. That's short for Dobsonian, and we're in the middle of talking to their inventor. John Dobson was blown away when he first looked through a telescope he had built. His first thought was, everyone needs to see this. He has spent the rest of his life giving people that opportunity i joined him as an urban star party went on around us back on august 4 2012 the evening before curiosity's landing on mars so here you have this legacy of dobbs as they're often called dobsonian telescopes all over the world
3: anyway we ran we ran around with a big telescope we've run through probably t- more than 25 national parks now let me tell you how it goes in the National Park. We get there with a lot of telescopes, not just that one, you see, but a, 30, uh, a 24-inch and an 18-inch and some other things, you see. And then they let you give a slideshow first. And then you flush all those people down those telescopes. Anyway, you do, We've done that. we've done that in 25 National Parks. And in some of them, we've done it a lot of times. Yosemite, we've done it a lot of times, not just once. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to tell you another funny story. When we first set the 24-inch up at Glacier Point in Yosemite, the security ranger saw it, and he said, you'll have to take it down before dark.
2: <laughs> That's
0: good.
3: What would you tell him? I, I was ready to pack and go, but Brian Rhodes... He was smarter than I, and he took the ranger over to the telephone, and they called the floor of the valley, and we are staying. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so you're obviously
0: very proud of that 24-inch scope.
3: Yes. But what about all these tens of them, maybe hundreds
0: of thousands of scopes, that based on your design, that have opened up astronomy for millions of people?
3: Yes, but I don't know whether they let everybody look through them like we did on that one. Ah, okay. How long has it that been? It was a public telescope. It was used almost entirely for the public, and it was a very good mirror. Four professional astronomers have told me they never had a better show through anything at any time than through our twenty-four. Wow!
0: How long has it been since you started spending these nights on that corner in San, Frans- San Francisco? Which is a sneaky way of asking how old you are
3: now. I'm not. I'm 96 years old now, and that was a long time ago. Let me see. Hang on now. The sidewalk astronomer started in 1968.
0: That's a long time ago. 44 years.
3: Yeah. Forty. Probably so.
0: These telescopes are probably going to be around, maybe forever, using your design.
3: If there was some easier way to do it, they wouldn't be around. <laughs> There's no easier way to aim at the sky than to go around this way and up and down that way. Yeah. If I, there was an easier way, I would have thought of it. <laughs>
0: I just got to say, once again, it is an honor to be able to speak with you and, and share your uh, words as uh, your invention has been shared with so many people.
3: Anyway, somebody had to get telescopes out for the, for the rest of the world, not for just astronomers.
0: You know what they had to do it. I think of it as kind of like that old metaphor uh, of you—you yeah. you can give a person fish or you can teach them how to fish—and you sort of gave a lot of people fishing poles.
3: <laughs> fishing pole. I never thought about it that way, but anyway, they had some access to the sky, and not only that, but that's a good use for ships' windows. I bought—I <laughs> bought four and a half tons of ships windows. Four and a half tons of ships windows. Now, I have to tell you a funny thing. It's 24 and a half inch, it's 18 and a half inch, it's 16 and a half inch. How come? No idea. Because if you put a 24 inch glass in a 24 inch hole, it goes straight out to sea. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> goes straight out to sea. So the porthole glasses come coming in an extra half inch. Almost all of them are, so it's a
0: good thing they decided to make portholes circular instead of square
3: <laughs> yes p- well, our first our first the first telescope that we made when I was still when we were still in the monastery was made of a 12 inch porthole yeah. you you mentioned that
0: story the fellow with jaundice
3: yeah, we had to take yes I thought. When I remembered it, I thought it was six inches in diameter and only half an inch thick. Uh-huh. I was shocked when I saw what he brought over.
0: It was a good start. And here is one of your scopes, right over here. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a dog. I don't think he won. And that's, uh, that's about the size that I had.
3: Oh, okay. Thank you very much. You are 24-inch, sleeps three in the tube. <laughs> Seriously? Yes, I've slept in there twice with two other people.
0: Talk about getting into your invention.
3: (laughs) Yes, thank you.
0: Thank you so much. It really has been a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Happy New Year, Bruce. Happy New Year. Got you back on the uh, Skype connection. He's the director of projects for the Planetary Society, and uh, he's here to tell us what's up in the night sky. So, uh, tell us, how does that brand new annualized uh, night sky
4: look? Boy, that was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Why it look? It looks uh, a- annualized. <laughs> I'll see if there's an annular solar eclipse. Yeah. Sorry, I I got nothing. I wasn't ready for you. Thanks for trying to save me. Go ahead. I tried. We'll just go straight into uh, Jupiter. Check out Jupiter in the night sky. I know I keep saying it, but it's so quite lovely over there in the east in the early evening. High up, uh, super bright. And if you look near it, you'll see a reddish star pretty near it. That's Aldebaran and Taurus. And then look to the north of it, a little bit farther off, but one of the brightest stars in the sky. That we'll be talking about a little bit later. Mm. Capella.
0: I saw Jupiter, and I saw that red star near it uh, because I was up in the mountains here on my little mini-vacation, and boy, gorgeous skies.
4: <laughs> at least if you
0: go into the mountains. Yeah, at least if you're a mile up.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got Venus still visible, but very low for the next few weeks. It's still hanging just barely low in the east in the pre-dawn. We've also got yellowish Saturn high in the southeast in the pre-dawn, getting higher and looking beautiful in the coming months. I'll, I'll keep you posted. So check those things out. We move on to this week in space history. It was 1610, Matt. It was a big, big week in 1610. Galileo, having heard that there were some moons of Jupiter named after him, discovered them. (laughs) Galileo discovered the Galilean satellites this week in 1610.
0: He said in his best Italian accent,
4: Hey, look, there they are. (laughs) (laughs) It's a more complicated story, but that's the (laughs) gist of it. We move on to
0: random space fact.
4: Having a happy new year. Oh, yeah. You know... Hubble's mirror, and just generally astronomical mirrors, but we'll talk about Hubble's. Hubble's primary mirror is really smooth. Mm -hmm. How smooth is it? Thank you. If Hubble's primary mirror were scaled up to the diameter of the Earth, the biggest bump would only be 15 centimeters, or about six inches tall. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's how smooth it is. That's smooth.
0: <laughs> well, this is great. So we got the Hubble mirror. We've got Galileo, who's now no mirrors,
4: but worked with lenses, and uh, and John Dobson. It's all. It's a theme show. It is a theme show, but I'm probably going to leave the theme pretty quickly as we move on to the trivia contest. And I asked you, speaking of Capella, how many stars make up the Capella system? what we call the naked eye star capella how many stars are actually hanging out in that what our eyes see as one one dot how do we do first of all you have very
0: much stuck with the theme because how would we know that there are actually four stars in what we see as the single star capella if with we didn't optics. Have, yeah right with with lenses with them mirrors those those smooth things it was holiday light was the reaction uh, from listeners this time around which of course improved the odds for those of you who did enter and the odds were really good for dave Skurlock, a first-time winner out of omaha nebraska who said yep four stars we left it to some other people to tell us that they're four stars in two binary pairs can you tell us more
4: in fact uh, they're kind of paired up pairs one binary pair is made up of Very large, bright stars, and the other pair has two red dwarf stars. Mm,
0: Okay. Well, we are going to send Dave one of those year-in-space wall calendars that we're uh, just about out of next week. The last one of those will get uh, awarded. A great new prize that we'll be talking about in a moment. But I have to tell you, Mark Wilson had a a trivia question for you. How many stars are there in the Dagobah system?
4: (laughs) Oh, wow. Give up? Yeah, I, I thought there was only one. Yes, so and
0: I... and and yes, and his name is Yoda. Ah, <laughs> uh,
4: humorous you are. <laughs> All right, now we're going off theme. Well, I suppose if you take the most a really really strained pun, you might be staying on the theme, but pretty much you can ignore that. Here's my uh, question. Go in a little different direction than we usually go. What song? By what group starts with the lyrics, We had a lot of luck on Venus, we always had a ball on Mars. Wow. Go to planetary.org slash radio find out how to enter. I am stumped.
0: You have until the 14th, January 14, that would be Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific time, to get us this answer. I can't wait to find out. And we have this wonderful prize.
4: And what is that, man?
0: Well, since we're out of calendars... Bill Nye, the CEO of the Planetary Society, the science guy who we heard just minutes ago on this program, Bill Nye will put his voice, he will record a message for your answering machine. In other words, people call, Bill will tell them that you're out, and something else, no doubt, very humorous. So that is the prize. Uh, and, um, we hope when you do all... they need to,
4: when do they need to have that in? By didn't
0: hour? I say, I think I did say the 14th.
4: Well, I'm really fuzzy. So, okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I, sorry. I thought maybe someone else didn't hear it.
0: Well, they might not have. And you are fuzzy.
4: I'm sorry. Were you talking, man? <laughs> Anyway, that's say, a cool prize. Say goodnight, Bruce. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about mini blueberry muffins. Thank you, and good night.
0: Mmm, don't need a telescope to smell those. He's Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. He's always cooking up something good for us here on What's Up. Join us next week at the annual conference of the American Astronomical Society. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California and is made possible by a grant from the Kenneth T and Eileen L Norris Foundation and by the far-sighted members of the Planetary Society. Clear Skies John